Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. Hello, and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today we're looking at Ukraine, where several things seem to be going wrong at the same time. Prime Minister Arseniy Yatsenyuk has just resigned. President Petro Poroshenko is now under attack over his business and financial affairs. The east of the country is still destabilised by conflict. And the Netherlands has just voted to reject the EU-Ukraine trade deal. So how bleak is the outlook? Joining me in the studio is Neil Buckley, our East Europe editor, and on the line from Kiev is Roman Nalyachuk, our correspondent there. Neil, a lot of things, as I say, not looking good. How bad do you think the situation of Ukraine is at the moment? I think we're in quite a, a serious situation at the moment. Two years on from the revolution that toppled Viktor Yanukovych, President Viktor Yanukovych, I think uh, the sense is we've reached a bit of a fork in the road. Um, and I think there are concerns that Ukraine may take the wrong fork or not the best one. There was hope when the economy minister resigned in February that that might trigger a bit of a reboot of the political system. He resigned alleging some high-level corruption and uh, it looked for a while as though we might get a more reform-minded, all-technocratic government in place, which might have been a positive move. Instead, it looks as though uh, we're going to get a government headed by a fairly close associate of Mr Poroshenko raising concerns that too much power may be concentrated in his hands and that this may be a less reformist government overall. But as you said, Mr Poroshenko has faced revelations about having set up an offshore structure in the British Virgin Islands in the Panama Papers last week, which has caused problems for his image at home. And, of course, voters in the Netherlands, albeit on a very low turnout, uh, rejected ratification of the uh, association agreement with the EU, which is what triggered the whole revolution in the first place. Roman, give us a sense of the atmosphere in Kiev. Are people very worried and disillusioned? Because I remember the last time I was there, I guess it was a few months back, there was still a sense that Poroshenko and Yatsenyuk could be a, a reformist team that could get the country going. Now they've fallen out. Has the promise of change, is it beginning to disappear? On the surface, spring has kicked in and the mood of a lot of people in the country has brightened up. But in the political arena, things are as messy as uh, can be. Uh, for for months, we had increasing infighting, corruption allegations, and things of that sort within the ruling coalition with the president's party and other parties that the coalition pushing for Mr. Yatsenyuk to resign as prime minister. He finally on Sunday resigned or tendered his resignation. But what we've seen in the past couple of days unfolding is a scene where the president's team, which is very keen to take over the government to put a presidential loyalist in power, as prime minister. His name is Volodymyr Groisman. They are struggling right now to form a new government. There's a lot of horse trading over cabinet ministerial posts, and you have senior officials that were touted for senior positions backing out of the proposed new plan government. So it shows you that even within the president's team, there's a lot of infighting. This raises, of course, a lot of questions about political stability going forward, the ability of a new government 
whoever the faces are, holding to the reforms, increasing the speed of reforms, and reviving a much-needed $17.5 billion IMF program, as well as billions of dollars of financing from the U.S. and other Western partners. So what is the economic and social background? Because for a couple of years now, people have been worried that Ukraine was teetering on the brink of bankruptcy. And of course, we've known ever since the Maidan demonstrations that sparked the revolution off that people are prone to go on the streets if they're unhappy. Yes, for many citizens, they're getting increasingly frustrated with two years of war and not enough reforms that would raise their living standards. Of course, the previous government of Mr. Arseniy Yatsenyuk with foreign technocrats stabilized the country's macroeconomic finances, uh, but they didn't have enough parliament support, they claim, to adopt reforms that could start raising living standards, for example, health care reform and, and other reforms that would be needed to crack corruption. And so with the war still smoldering, with economic pain setting in following 40% inflation last year and about 10% of GDP contraction. The population is starting to lose patience. Just this last Friday, we saw tires burning as a form of protest outside the presidential office for the first time since the Maidan revolution. And what we've seen happen in past months is if the population and politicians were previously increasingly blaming Mr. Yatsenyuk and his government for all of the austerity measures like increased utility tariffs, which were a part of the IMF program. And if all the blame was focused on him, in recent weeks, the focus of criticism, anger, the venting has shifted to the president himself. Now he has got what he wanted. He is in a position to make his loyalist, Volodymyr Groisman, prime minister, but he is struggling to even achieve that. The infighting, even within his own camp, is further undermining his image at home. Roman, just to finish off on this, the situation you describe is fairly grim, but do you think it's something where Ukraine is just drifting or is it heading towards a new crisis? That's a very good question. I mean, Ukraine is a country which has had political crises or has been locked in political crises of various intensity since independence. So in many ways, many people here in Ukraine would put this into context. And for example, the person who's touted to be the new parliament speaker, a man called Andriy Parubi, has stressed that actually we're more stable than we ever have been. We are now fighting over what tax rate we should have, not what direction we should take, be it closer relations with Russia or the EU. He stresses, for example, that everyone, the majority of politicians and the public, uh, are set on the direction the country should take, Western integration, closer relations with the EU, and now it needs to focus on the nitty-gritty reforms that are needed to bring Ukraine more in line with EU standards and to raise living standards. So, Neil, Roman mentions the EU, and they're still looking towards the EU, but the EU, at least in the form of the Netherlands referendum, has just delivered something of a slap in the face for Ukraine. How serious is that? We don't know yet exactly how that's going to play out because it depends how the Dutch government and how the European Union responds to that vote. Dutch Prime Minister Mr Rutte has said that he will have to take account of it in some way, but he's still figuring that out. I think in some ways it, it may prove to be more of a symbolic setback rather than a very concrete one for Ukraine itself because the agreement, trade agreement, has already come into effect. But it handed a symbolic victory also to Russia and to Vladimir Putin, who has been trying first to block that agreement and then after it was signed to reopen it and undermine it. He's put a lot of effort into that. So it was quite a fillip to him 
Um, and really, the Russian strategy in recent months seems to have been to dial down on the conflict in eastern Ukraine, which is still simmering a little, but really at a much, much lower intensity than what it was before last September. And he's been sitting and waiting, calculating, I think, that Ukraine's domestic political stresses and strains would start to show and the situation there would, would deteriorate. And unfortunately, that's what we're seeing. So it may be that that Russian strategy has worked. And against that backdrop, the vote in the Netherlands last week is certainly not uh, something that's welcome or good for Ukraine. What's the view in Kiev, Roman? Were people very dismayed by the Dutch vote? There were so many things here happening domestically with the Panama Papers leaking and showing that the president had an offshore company that the Dutch referendum, as bad as the result it is for Ukraine, was just another big drop in the bucket. But all of these things are mounting, including the political instability and the infighting, so it certainly has made the situation worse. Obviously, the big backdrop for all of this, and perhaps where we should end, was the fact that Ukraine has been through a war, that the east of the country is still, as I understand it, not really under the control of Kiev. Large parts of the infrastructure have been destroyed. What do you think that situation How's it going to develop and will the East be rebuilt, Neil? Well, at the moment, we're in a kind of limbo. I think the situation in East Ukraine has come to resemble somewhat over the last few months other frozen conflict situations elsewhere in the former Soviet Union. So like Transnistria in Moldova or South Ossetia and Abkhazia in Georgia, most of the fighting has died down. But it's really in a political limbo. Kiev is not in control of it politically. Um, those regions are living in part on handouts that they're getting unofficially from Russia. And the Minsk peace agreement that was signed in February last year to all intents and purposes, has stalled. I mean, there just is no progress on implementation of that. The danger with frozen conflicts, as we saw in Nagorno-Karabakh recently, another of the ex-Soviet frozen conflicts, is that they can flare up unpredictably. And the situation in the east of Ukraine is still something that Mr Putin and Moscow can use, almost at will, to put pressure on Ukraine when they choose to do so. And Roman, from Kiev, how does the situation in the east look? And are people still basically scared that they could slip back into a serious war with Russia? On a daily basis, the television channels carry the casualties, and every day there are casualties on the Ukrainian army side, casualties or injuries, and the public is reminded about this on a daily basis, and it certainly does undermine the public's confidence in the future. There also is increasingly uh, concern in the leadership of Kyiv that the West has not put enough pressure on Russia to de-escalate the situation there through perhaps deeper sanctions or other forms of pressure. And the feeling is that at the current levels, it's almost become a bleeding wound that the Russians can continue bleeding the country financially in terms of deaths of soldiers bleeding it and keeping the pressure on Kyiv, trying to perhaps tip it towards a moment where it would politically implode on itself and where maybe a more Moscow-friendly leadership would come to power. And that is one of the concerns about the current political situation, that if there were to be a snap election held, if the country's leaders fail to form a functional ruling coalition now, then there is a concern that you would have more pro-Russian parties coming in to power on the one hand through a protest vote and more pro nationalist powers coming in on the other hand, and they could clash in Parliament, further destabilizing the country politically. Okay, well, we'll keep watching the situation. But for now, Roman Elyachuk in Kiev, thank you very much indeed. Thanks also to Neil Buckley here in the studio in London. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. 
Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.